Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Gym Podcast. Uh, my name is John Dickinson. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm also the Chair of the Publications Committee for uh, the American Federation for Medical Research, and our mission is to mentor tomorrow's leaders in medical research. Uh, welcome to another uh, podcast edition. I'm happy to be here. Um, today, I want to take a little bit of a different perspective. Three years ago, a new highly effective treatment for disease cystic fibrosis was introduced, and it's had an immediate and long-lasting impact on persons with CF. Um, the clinical trial data was released at the annual CF conference, which is in the fall of the year, and this was in 2019, and it generated a lot of buzz and excitement at the convention about the future of CF care. Um, I remember looking at the data and that it showed that lung function increased 10 to 15% and the number of hospitalizations for exacerbations of uh, CF disease was decreased. This was great data. It was strong data. Um, however, today I wanna shift the conversation to a patient perspective. Um, I remember when we started having patients um, start on this new medication, I started receiving text messages and, and emails from patients showing and showing and doing things they couldn't do before. Um, and that was just an amazing uh, time uh, to really to be in, in the CF community. For those of you who don't know, CF is a genetic disease. Persons with CF inherit a copy of the defective gene from each of their parents. Uh, and so many of the symptoms of CF are present at birth or even in utero. Uh, so it's a lifelong disease and kids that grow up with CF have to learn to live with it. It really becomes part of the fabric of their lives from a young age, along with school and family and friends and sports. So today, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're gonna take a little bit of a different perspective. Um, and really it's the theme is, as we think about the Thanksgiving holiday in the United States next week is really counting our blessings and to get a little different perspective on medicine and medical research, this time from the patient side of, of things. Uh, and so with that, I'm really pleased to welcome um, Nicholas Bell to the Jim podcast. Um, Nick is uh, a person living with CF, um, but he's really a lot more than that. And I hope that our conversation today will really show that um, and illustrate that. So Nick, welcome to the Jim uh, podcast. And um, thanks for um, sharing a little bit of time with us today. And I hope you're getting ready for, for Thanksgiving next week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here and always happy to, you know, speak on the awareness of cystic fibrosis and, and help people um, become more knowledgeable about what it's like to live with that, what it's like to love someone who experiences that, and uh, all the challenges that come with it. Nick, can you just start out and just tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your background? Sure. I'm 39 years old. Uh, I was born in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, we discovered at six months of age that I had cystic fibrosis, actually through a very old advertisement that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation made long ago. And it was one that said, kiss your baby's forehead. And if it tastes salty, get them tested for cystic fibrosis. My mom at the time was working at Bergen Mercy Hospital here in Omaha, taking baby pictures. 
And she happened to see that ad while at work, came home, kissed me on the forehead, and I was salty. So she got me tested for cystic fibrosis and the journey began. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's interesting. You know, now, of course, we have universal newborn screening by a genetic test for all kids in Nebraska and throughout the United States born with CF. But uh, that's a, that's kind of an incredible um, moment in your life. Now, can you tell us what was it like to grow up with, with cystic fibrosis and your childhood and then, you know, maturing into adult life? What, what were those years like? Yeah, I do think that cystic fibrosis tends to make your make you um, mature more quickly. I think that's probably true of most chronic illnesses. You start to learn words that are far bigger than ever, anybody in your grade is learning. Um, so as far as what it was like to be a kid with cystic fibrosis, it, on my end, it didn't seem too much different other than those extra visits to the to the doctor's office, those larger words, the treatments at home. That was probably the most invasive thing was the treatments at home because you want to be a kid, you want to run and play and, and your friends aren't having to stop, you know, every day, twice a day to hook up to machine. Um, back at that point, it was um, a, a handheld percussor. So I would like lay across my parents' lap and they would, you know, help me with my treatments back then. Um, so that was kind of, you know, less than stellar as a, as a child. But on the other side of things, I was very fortunate and I was playing sports. I was, you know, keeping up with my classmates in pretty much any other way. And it wasn't until I went to, <laughs> surprisingly enough, a camp for kids that had CF, which was, yes, a thing that existed once upon a time. And I laughed because, as you know, um, we all are supposed to sort of keep our distance, but I once shared an entire cabin with, um, you know, honestly, it was probably 12 to 14 other boys that had cystic fibrosis. And then there was a, another, you know, cabin down the way of, of young girls that had cystic fibrosis and we all got to share a week together. And that was really eye-opening for me. I, I think I sort of, like any kid would, just complained about, you know, chores, but in my world chores was doing my treatments and so when I got to that camp and realized how invasive it was for some of my peers um, it was a real eye-opener eye for me and I was like okay I can take some pills and I can do my per percussion twice a day while I'm watching kids like feed through feeding tubes who have ports um, who have IV antibiotics going on. And, and that was something I had yet to experience. To be honest, I don't think I had IV antibiotics until maybe my teens. Mm. Mm. So I'd be interested to look that up if we could. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just, to, just to remind our, our listeners, people with CF, a lot of times they, they have trouble with mucus in their lungs. And so it takes a lot of attention and effort every single day to to really to be able to breathe, right? So can you describe for us some of the treatments you had to do as, as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old kid that, to help keep your lungs free of mucus? Yeah, when I was younger, I was so active that, you know, and just fortunate, I think, um, with my particular case, 
that I just really needed to do percussion. So I wasn't doing nebulizers unless I was sick. Um, so I remember here and there doing those. And I want to say when I was maybe like 13, 14 was a period of, of time where I had to start doing them more regularly. So I remember being very bummed about that because it felt like a really big setback, like, oh, what's happening to me? Um, lots of questions swirling. Um, so the the daily percussion, the taking of pills each morning, the taking of pills with eating food. A lot of us have digest digestive issues. So I had to take my enzymes every time before I would eat. Um, but other than that, <clears throat> those were sort of my daily regimen. Did you, you know, find it when you transitioned, you know, into adulthood, what was that like, you know, coming into adulthood with, with a lifelong disease? Did you find that, oh, I was ready for that freedom or was it harder to move away from your parents who I'm sure were, you know, a big part of helping you keep on to your treatments? Yeah, when I moved into the dorms freshman year was sort of my first experience outside of the house. And I did not do a very good job. Um, I was healthy enough that it did not necessarily show up. So I, I did it here and there. But I remember being very embarrassed because I was in the dorms. And uh, and where we lived, a lot of people just kind of left their doors open. I mean, I think that's pretty common when you live in the dorms, you're sort of socializing, meeting people. And I, I would always want to shut my door. I wouldn't want anybody to walk in when I was doing that because then it's just this whole story, you know, an explanation. And when you're new in, an, in a college environment, you don't really want to be normal. Yeah. You don't really want to deal with that. Yeah. So I fell off and then there was definitely times in sort of through my sophomore, junior year, um, and even beyond after graduating college, I moved out to Colorado for a year that I had, and I think you know this, a very healthy distrust of some experiences I had in the medical industry. And and so I just didn't go to the doctor for large chunks of time. I want to say there was like a period of a year and a half where I didn't even come in to the clinic, partly because I was living in Colorado and didn't have care set up there yet. And I definitely came back from living there, you know, showing those, the lack of treatments, you know, I was very skinny and, and my lung function had dropped and, um, and I paid the price and, and then kind of started to come around on coming more regularly, making sure I was keeping up with things. But even then it was still like just enough. You know, I think it wasn't until I hit my 30s and, and had a, a near death experience that that it, that it really hit home. And, and suddenly I was coming in. You guys are asking me, how many treatments are you getting in? If I needed to get in 14, I was getting in 14. Any other time, if I ever said that, I'd always underestimate and I was always fibbing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, one of the things, um, just to move beyond a little bit beyond the symptoms of CF, which can be burdensome for a lot of people. But to be honest, one of the things I've always admired about you, and I've known you now for about eight years, um, is you know your willingness to help others and how you volunteer and do a lot of things 
um, to people who are less fortunate and you use your skills to help others. And I've always been really inspired by that. It's one of the reasons I, I really like being in, in the CF communities. I'm often inspired by my patients. Um, and so for our listeners, share with us a little bit about some of the things you did. You know, I, I thinking in particular about your work with uh, some of the inner city kids and the poetry slam competitions. And I'm, I'm also thinking about your work in the, in the, in the prison system as well. Sure. Yeah, so for a decade, I worked for a um, wonderful organization called the Nebraska Writers Collective and was very fortunate in helping build an annual poetry festival that they run. Um, it's now called All Rights Reserved. And um, we'd put together teams of poets in different high schools, and then they would compete in a big festival kind of similar to like you know, what people be familiar with speech and debate. In the end, there's a winner crowned and uh, they get a trophy full of Pop-Tarts and all the bragging rights. <laughs> um, but I was able to help coach teams throughout that process and, and was lucky enough to kind of get in at the floor level of when that started here in Omaha and was very passionate about it. And I think people saw that quickly. So um, I kind of grew through the ranks and was able to be a supervisor and, and help kind of dictate how things should run and look and, um, and just make it. So when I first came on board there, I remember just the visual in my mind of, of it just felt like this upside down triangle and we were just kind of teetering. And I was like, we really need to get legs on the outsides of this, you know, to just kind of make sure we don't fall over. So lots of systems and places of just trainings for our own employees that we were sending into these schools, because it's, you know, you don't just, there's so much more to it than just teaching poetry. When you're teaching poetry, you know, in, in particular, with some of the kids that that do come out in this event, they're just they're encountering lots of challenges in the home, at school, economically, socioeconomically. And so, you know, we're fortunate enough to provide more than poetry in those instances. Some of those places where, you know, kids came because it was a spot to get a snack, you know, and we'd have food for them. Um, and then and then they'd come and hang out longer and be like, hey, this is pretty cool. And then kids who said they didn't want to part in it were, you know, jumping in the mix in the mix. <laughs> so I I really love and do miss that work. Um, and and during my time there, I it was always a dream of mine, even before starting to work there, to get into the prisons and try and teach some creative writing. Um, friend of mine and who actually lives in San Francisco now, we both used to live downtown and long ago we tried going to the Douglas County Corrections and I think they pretty much laughed in our faces when we told them our idea. Yeah. But we, you know, there's lots of red tape. We also were two, you know, random yahoos off the street. And at this point I had an organizational, you know, backing and I was also extremely lucky that I went to my boss and said, you know, hey, I'd, I'd really like if we could pay people for this work so that I could get other people involved because it takes a particular, I think, person that's that's willing to 
go into those settings and, and teach and um and it also I wanted to just make sure that I felt like I was rewarding those efforts for the people that were joining. And I don't think it's active currently because I know COVID hit a lot of setbacks, but we built a lot of networks. I do think we're maybe in the youth, they are maybe in the youth facility still. And, you know, we were actually able to run a couple poetry slams in, in the prisons some that got coverage from news stations and everything. So that journey was amazing. And sometimes when I think back on it, it just doesn't feel real. Like I feel so lucky. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that when you're doing these activities, when you're giving of yourself and volunteering, how does it help you? Um, clearly you're the type of person that you like to help other people. How does it help you with dealing with a chronic disease? I think just facing adversity to that magnitude helps translate with other people who are facing large adversities. So, you know, for instance, when I was teaching in the prisons, that sort of a, aligned with my near-death experience in a way that I was very well known. Um in in the in the groups that we visited at the Omaha Correctional Center and, and other areas. Um people knew me as the poetry guy. Uh one guy I remember because I, I couldn't wear my hat when I went in there and I'm bald. So mm -hmm. no one ever really saw me without a hat except those guys. And one guy would always call me Moby <laughs> because I'm bald and have glasses. But um just the ability to connect you know, coming back from having almost died and, and being told I might need a lung transplant and everything that comes along with that, uh, having to have my femoral artery kind of repaired and almost nearly rerouted, needing to learn how to rewalk after having been on laid out for five days. Um, when I, when I came back into those spaces, the, you know, people there just, I want to say one of the groups I visited like clapped when I walked in the room, you know? So I, I don't want to say credibility because it's not that, but more so relatability. Yeah. And so I think that that's, a, I hope a skill that I've crafted and, and the ability to connect. I've always tried to refer to myself as a chameleon. I, I feel like I can walk into most spaces and, and not feel out of place. Let's let's shift gears a little bit and um, let's talk about uh, the new CF treatments. And just for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to use the the trade name, which is Alexacaftor, Tazacaftor, Ivacaftor, which is the drug combination, which are highly effective CFTR modulators, um, which were uh, a pill introduced in 2019 through some uh, after a randomized controlled trial, as I mentioned earlier, showed phenomenal um benefits um and it was it, we could tell looking at the data this was going to be life-changing and i remember when you sent me a text message showing me that you because you were on oxygen at the time but now you were running on the treadmill and you i think you finished a mile or in some mile pace or something you couldn't do before and mm. and so i guess i'm just interested if you could share for us what it felt like 
being on this new medication and how it sort of changed your perspective? I remember the very first dose I took. And and I won't, I mean, I don't know if it was like this for everybody, but within hours, I felt this mass exodus of mucus. From your lungs. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was just coughing it up. I was getting it out. And I think by by the end of that first week, I went from producing sputum that was thick and green to non-existent and clear within five to seven days. I mean, and I know that wasn't everybody's experience with it. So, um, but I just remember feeling it within hours of taking the first pill and being shocked at how quickly it worked within myself. And then, um, yeah, as you mentioned, I was hitting the gym. I was, I was lower my, um, mile time, you know, like each time I went back and was working out. I, th I think one of the, so I was debating about what to talk about when I knew that we were going to do this podcast and one of the most life-changing things for me with Trikafta, aside from the obvious of its improvements in, in my health, was that prior to Trikafta and prior to my near-death experience, I had yet to go back up the mountain and go snowboarding. I wasn't necessarily sure if I could, like if I'd be able to breathe due to the elevation. And... When I got on Trikafta, you know, I went back up to the mountains and, and it was possible. And, um, and that's something that now I share with my wife and my bought a season pass this year. And, you know, we've got about three, four trips planned to get out there. So it's a very important thing. As I mentioned, I lived in Colorado once. So snowboarding, the freedom it provides, the views it provides, the exercise it provides, everything about that is is just my favorite act, one of my favorite activities. And wow. so knowing that I might have lost that, um, the ability to just have the the physical um capacity to go up there, I didn't know, you know, and I just never tried it because my health wasn't there. And, you know, and then I knew with that that I'd be able to. So um, I went up with some friends and I remember that first trip up. I mean, it was still kind of challenging, um, tr especially trying to keep up with them because they're really t talented riders, but I was able to, and, and that just was so joyous for me. I had just this great visual in my mind, you know, of, so the great thing about this CF story that I love to talk about is is the 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 path of science how you know in 1989 we discovered the cf gene the very first gene ever sequenced mm -hmm. and with with the, that science came the knowledge of, okay then we knew what the, the cf protein does how it's folded and then 20 years later now we know okay but what if we we give certain drugs maybe this will make the gene work better because we know the problem is the mucus is too thick and then a couple of years later, it was like, well, what if we use this combination of, 
of, of medicines. And that worked okay. And then in 2019, it was like, oh, we're going to use this combination of medicine. And we've gone from sequencing the CF gene in 1989 to being on the mountain snowboarding. And that's really what we want in medicine is we want to take our scientific discoveries, move them through exhaustive research, trials, clinical medicine, and get to somewhere where you can have a meaningful impact on people's lives. And that's just great. Um, and and so I, now I've got that visual, uh, Nick, of you on the mountain, just breathing that crisp Colorado air and uh, letting loose. So that's awesome. What, what a metaphor, though, the way you tied that together. Now you're a poet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the last thing I want to ask is, you know, looking back, you're 39. There's a lot of years ahead. But if you could sit back and... and talk to yourself at age 14 or some other, how about a kid today who's 14? And what would you tell them? What, what advice would you have? I, <laughs> I get asked this, not that, not in that same way, but by a lot of um, parents I encounter of CF patients, because they'll find me through whatever means um, or I'll encounter them in my own life. And um, I've trained some people's dogs who I have kids with CF and, you know, and they asked me what, what could I say to my kid? And and I, I don't know that there's anything you can say. I certainly would have some words for my 14 year old self. Um, don't wait till you almost die to like, start to make a difference. You know, like it's, it, you can't let yourself backslide that far before you learn that it matters. And you know, and you think it's it's stealing away from your youth, your time. But what it is, is it's stealing away from sort of the end of, of your life. And you don't see that in the moment. And, you know, so if I could shake my 14-year-old self, I would just say it's important, regardless of what, how healthy you feel, to stay on top of this stuff so that you don't slide so far that you almost slide off the mountain. Yeah. And, and I did, you know, I almost didn't come back from it. Well, you're able to ride the edge and uh, keep snowboarding. And, yeah. uh, um, well, I think all of us can, can, we could look back into when we were 14, 15, 16 and think about things we'd say to ourselves, but when you have CF, it just it makes those decisions so much more impactful. Um, and, uh, I think there's a, a lot of optimism now moving forward, a lot to be thankful for, still challenges. Um, but, uh, you know, um, a, a lot to look forward to for the future, even so kids born today with CF, you know, I think that there's um, a, a lot of lofty expectations about the, what their future will hold. Um, and I think that's just going to be another, another page in the journey. But, um, but Nick, I just wanted to thank you again for um, having you join us today and sharing your story and how inspiring it is. And um, we're just uh, really grateful for all your experiences and, and what you've done for the CF community. Of course, you're welcome. Last thing I would leave you with is um, pre-Trikafta, I was on disability and working part-time. And now post-Trikafta, having been on it for three years, I own my own small business and train dogs. So it went from me not being able to work full time to me now being my own business.
And can you, can you, uh, for our listeners in the Omaha area, what's the, your business you're running now? Um, the dog paw canine training. So we're on, I'm on 108th and Maple and we do private lessons and board and trains where we take people's dogs for a couple of weeks, train them up around our pack and send them home. Yeah. And that's keeping you busy. It looks like. <laughs> yes, very much so, but, uh, I enjoy it. So it's great. And get a lot of, a lot of extra four-legged love around the house. That's great. All right, Nick. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great Thanksgiving. And you too. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you later. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. And for our listeners, we'll look. Uh, thanks again for joining us. And we'll see you again next month for another edition of the Gym Podcast.